Some years ago, the people of Texas were being plagued by a Mexican bandit called Jorge Rodriguez. Who would, thank you, I know you say that, we're good. Jorge Rodriguez, who would cross the border and rob their banks. The state of Texas eventually commissioned a ranger to go into Mexico, find Senor Jorge, and get their money back. It took a while, but eventually this Texas ranger found Mr. Rodriguez, this bandit in a saloon south of the border. The ranger pulled out his gun, pointing it at Jorge and said, I'll shoot you and I will kill you if you don't tell me where you've hidden all the money that you've stolen. Tell me or I'll blow you away. At that moment, another man, Luis, spoke up and said, Sir, Mr. Jorge does, does not understand one word of English. He has no idea what you've said. Would you like me to translate? <laughs> yes, said the ranger. Thank you. Tell him to confess or I will kill him. There was much gesturing and uh, chattering as Luis explained everything to Jorge. Finally, Jorge uh, said in perfect Spanish, go to the well on the south side of the city, one mile outside. Climb down to the bottom of the well. Remove the third and the fourth bricks. And there behind you will find all the money that I've stolen. When Jorge had finished speaking, Luis turned to the ranger and translated. Señor, Jorge says... He refuses to tell you where the money is, so go ahead and shoot me. We are wrapping up our series called My Big Fat Mouth. It is, uh, it is based upon this idea that left to ourselves, our mouths, our words, our conversations can get us into trouble. It's like what the writer of Proverbs says. He says, your words, your conversation, right, can either bring healing to someone or it can either bring hurt to someone. Right. It can bring pleasure to someone or bring pain to someone. The literal phrase that he uses in the book of Proverbs, he says, our words, our conversation can either bring life or they can bring death like poor Jorge in the story. Right. And so we've been talking about this now for two, three weeks. We're wrapping it up today. And I hope some of it is at least being brought to your attention each week during the week as you're having conversations to just kind of catch your breath, catch your tongue, and make sure we're not saying things that are hurtful and harmful to others. This morning, here's how we're going to wrap up our series. We're basing it on one of the theme verses that I use to kind of jump into this series, where Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, both what we should not do and what we should do. And so he starts out by saying, he says, do not, do not, do not let any unwholesome talk, any unhealthy talk, any unchristian talk, any unhelpful talk, do not let any of that unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. It's not appropriate, right? Don't do that. But then, as we've been doing through most of the series, we've also been trying to say, well, what should I do? Instead of doing unwholesome talk, he says, what I want you to do is speak only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Uh, we're going to look at both of those parts. Unwholesome talk and talk that builds other, others up. But before we do, I want to ask you a question. If someone had a phone or uh, some sort of recording device where this past week they recorded everything you said, how much percentage of your words, how much percentage of your conversation would be unhelpful, unwholesome? How much percentage would build people up? Think about it real quick. I realize a lot of what we say is kind of neutral. It's in the middle. But how much of your words were unhelpful, unwholesome? How many of your words build people up? Keep that in your mind because what I'm going to do, part one, is talk about some unwholesome things. 
And then part two, talk about some positive things that will help build people up. If you're jotting down notes, here's, here's what we're going to start. This idea that some things don't go together. Would you agree with that? Vinegar and ice cream don't go together. No. A toaster and taking a bath don't go together. Vodka and making decisions don't go together, right? Lindsay Lohan and a clean record doesn't go together. There's just some things that don't go together, okay? Now, I say that because we're actually a little, after my message, we'll have a little short announcement time. We're going to tell you our, our Easter egg hunt's coming up, and we need your help. And it, we, we, it's, this is kind of all hands on deck. And, and so last year, I was there on Easter egg hunt day. I also volunteered with many of you. There's like a hundred of us in the warehouse and we were stuffing candy. Remember the little eggs? We were stuffing the candy. And I remember as we were doing that, there was one common theme that kept coming up, right? And it's this idea that some things don't go together. Some flavors don't belong as candy. You see what I'm saying with that? Now, I, ha- I actually have the wrapper with me, but I realize you're not going to be able to see it. So let's put it on the screen. Let me show you what we were giving kids. Gummy peas and carrots. Now, this my you see, it's open, so I actually tasted it. Gross. And, and I marched right over to our children's pastor, Nate, and said, listen, <clears throat> I have seniority over you, right? Uh, I, I have a lot of degrees, right? Uh, I'm a fairly successful pastor. And I'm telling you, us giving this candy to young kids is driving them away from Jesus, right? What are we doing, right? And it became the joke. Now, I was kind of half having fun because there was only a couple of these. Most of the candy was really good, right? But, but there, in, a, in a true sense, none of your kids, none of my kids ever went to the supermarket begging for mom and dad to buy them gummy peas and carrots. Vegetables and candy, just they don't mix. You know what else doesn't go together? You want to know what else doesn't go together? A Christian that has unwholesome talk doesn't go together. James says in chapter 3, he says, Out of my mouth, out of our mouths, come praise and come cursing. That should not be. It it shouldn't be. One of the things that should um, communicate to the world that we're different is how we speak to one another and how we speak to others. And that's what this series is based upon. It's not about throwing anyone under the bus. It's every one of us acknowledging that every once in a while we say things that are unhelpful and unwholesome and unchristian. And so that's what we've been talking about to try and and, and figure that out. Um, Over the weeks, here's some of the examples of what we've talked about. We'll put it on the screen. We've talked about last week, gossiping, criticizing, complaining, you know, and I realize it's hard to eliminate that, but I hope just this last week you, you moved in the direction of minimizing that, doing less of that. We talked about cursing. That kind of has come up in and out throughout the weeks. We looked at the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, at least three of them have to do with our speech, taking the Lord's name in vain, disrespecting our parents, lying and dishonesty. And, of course, week one, we talked about James chapter one, how so many of our words are are hurtful and destructive and harmful. Came across a quote I I don't normally read quotes from religious leaders from other faiths, but this one caught my attention. Gandhi has been quoted as once saying, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, I don't know the context in which he said this, but I can only imagine that part of what he was seeing 
is actually what he was hearing. Is that sometimes the way we speak to others, goodness gracious, the way we speak to each other, the way we speak to the, the ones we care for the most, our family, it's not right. It's not good. It's not helpful. It's not Christian. Okay. And so, so much of this is you just trying harder, working harder, being more self-controlled, being more self-disciplined, but you can't just do that. Let me, let me show you why Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says that there's a root cause if we speak in a way that's unwholesome. Here's what he says. Out of the abundance or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, if you're jotting down notes, here's what you need to write down. You see it on the screen. A bad mouth equals a bad heart. That's what Jesus said. When, when things are coming out of my mouth or someone else's mouth that are unwholesome, you can automatically conclude something's going on right here inside their heart. But let's just be honest. Oh, I've been telling you every single week, th- this series is not for and about the person sitting next to you. It's for you. So if something's coming out of your mouth or maybe the way in which you're saying it, maybe you're not cussing, but the way in which you're saying something is unhelpful and unwholesome, you've got to go right back to the root cause, which is the heart. So I can't have a series where we talk about our mouths and not talk at least about this concept. So if you're in your notes, there's three things that I'm encouraging you to do. Let's put it on the screen. It's this idea that we need to do heart exercises, heart surgery, heart transplant. Now, those of you writing notes that are like, really, every single blank is the word heart? Yeah, I'm doing that on purpose. And, and, and I'm doing it on purpose because, yes, this series is about our mouth, our tongues. And I need you to understand, at least for this little segment right there, here, that ultimately everything that comes out of our mouth has to do with what's going on in our heart. So let me just go through it real quickly. And I want you to identify which one of these do you most need to do. For the sake of teaching, I'm going to start with number three and build my way up. Number three, a heart transplant. Jesus, God is speaking to someone, some of us here today in chapter 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. He's not talking literally physically. He's talking spiritually. I'm going to give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove your, your, your old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you so that it will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The New Testament is eventually going to change the language of how Ezekiel said it. And he's going to talk about being born again. Now, in a room this size, I know many of you and, you know, 85 percent of us, 90 percent of us have already accepted Jesus as our savior. But there's five to 10 percent of us that haven't. There's a number of us here that know about Jesus, but we've never embraced Jesus. We've never said yes to Jesus. We've never grabbed onto that cross and said, I'm not going to try and figure life out on my own. I'm going to trust in Jesus as my savior. And if you're here and you're hearing that, I need you to understand that having a new heart, being born again, doesn't just impact how you speak. There are eternal impacts. It's critically important that you take that step. The difference of 16 inches between your head and your heart, knowing about Jesus and trusting Jesus makes all the difference. It starts there. You need a heart transplant. Now, beyond that, there are a number of us, many of us, we, well, we got saved in vacation Bible school or summer camp or youth group or one of the Sunday services a couple years ago. Well, I'm saved. You're a Christian, but I, I keep saying things that are not right. So what's my issue? You might need to think about having heart surgery. Heart surgery, right? Second Chronicles chapter six. 
when they sin against you, against God, and if they have a change of heart, there it goes right there. You don't need a new one. You need a change of heart. What does that mean? And repent has nothing to do or is not just confession. Confession is part of repentance, but it's not that, right? Confession is, yeah, you're right, I screwed up. But if you do that and nothing else, that's not what this is talking about. Repentance is admitting that you did something wrong and stop doing it. I'm going to change. I'm going to go in a new direction. I'm not going to do it as much as I used to. Not as much gossiping, not as much complaining. There's repentance. There's a change, right? Change of heart and repent. And if they turn back to you with all their heart, then God will forgive his people. One of the interesting things, when you study the doctrine or the theology of sin, what it teaches in the Bible and scripture is that if I, let's just think of a list of sins. We've talked about some of them already. Lying, uh, disrespecting our parents, uh, cheating on our spouse, pornography, uh, robbing our boss, cheating on our taxes. I mean, there's the list, right? Let's put them up. It doesn't matter which one, whichever one it is. Okay, the theology of sin teaches that if you eliminate as many of those as you can, if you repent, I'm going to confess and I'm going to turn and do something new. The theology of sin teaches that when you eliminate sin from your life, it has a holistic impact on all of your life. Let me say that again. You eliminate any sin from your life and it has a holistic impact on all of your life. So if you want to work on your words and your tongue, right? One of the practical things you do is look at any of the list of sins you got in your life. Which one are you really good at? We all got one we're really good at. You know what I mean? Eliminate that. Minimize that and watch. Automatically, it'll already start working on your tongue. Why? Because you're starting to cleanse your heart. Does that make sense? So it's just repent. Repent of anything. Find anything in your life that you need to stop doing. Repent. Make a change. It's going to impact in a secondary way, your heart and your tongue, okay? The last one is heart exercises. You know, some of us like to go to the gym. We like to work out. Why? Because we're trying to be physically healthy, right? And just like you go to a gym and there are different machines to work different muscles, right? Or different ways to do exercise. The same is true spiritually. The The Bible talks about different spiritual exercises and machines you can use to become spiritually healthy. We just call them spiritual disciplines, That's the word we use around here, but that's the same thing. Let me tell you the main one you need to work on. Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, I will seek you with all my heart. Notice that theme. The heart is the control center of who we are. I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands, he says to God. How do I do this? Watch. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You want to work on your tongue? You want to get better at how you speak to other people, your tone and your words. You just got to get more of this in you. Now, what we're doing here this morning is part of that. This is me, your Bible chef, trying to put a Bible lesson before you so it nurtures your soul. That's my job. But if the only time you have a spiritual meal is on Sunday morning, your soul is going to be really, really hungry. So you've got to learn how to self-feed. That's all I'm saying. And I get it. There are verses and there's sections in here that are that complicated. I don't know what they mean. I get it. But, but my suggestion is re- read one chapter a day, Monday through Friday. Take Saturday off. Come to church on Sunday. Watch what it does to your soul. 
Watch what it does. If you want to pick up the daily bread, we got a little thing back there, daily bread. That You've got to figure out to get more spiritual food in your soul. The more spiritual food you get in your soul, the stronger your soul, your heart is. The more stronger and healthy your soul is and your heart, your words start to change. That's it. So find one of these. Some of us here today, maybe we need a heart transplant. It's time to accept Jesus. Maybe you just need to repent. You got sin in your life. You know it. I may not know it. Person next to you may not know it, but you know it. So does God. You got to clean that out. Or you just got to get better at this. Don't let this intimidate you, right? Yes, you can lean on other people to get insights, but you can start reading this and getting something out of it, okay? So we've been talking about the unwholesome. Let's put our summary slide up there. So we've talked about what is unwholesome. Now, the last little bit, last 15 minutes or so, I want to talk about what is helpful for building others up. You know, I came up with a list of 20 and I realized I don't have enough time. There are so many good things we should be saying to each other. I'm going to give you as best as I can four. two of them have to be, have to do with kind of our relationship with Jesus and other people's relationship with Jesus. And two of them are just kind of life principles, what we should say to other people. Okay. Does that make sense? Here's the first thing I want to encourage you. Use your words to help them, to build them up by witnessing to them, by witnessing to them. Witnessing is just telling other people about Jesus, helping them take their next step closer to Jesus. Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus is speaking. He says, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, that's Acts chapter two, you will be my witnesses. You're going to tell other people about me. Now, at the time, Acts chapter one, he's talking to the Jerusalem community church. So what he says is specific to them. If he was speaking to Bay Hills community church, what you see on the screen is what he would say to you. You will be my witnesses. You're supposed to tell other people about Jesus. Watch in the East Bay right here where we live. Elsa Brandy, Richmond, San Pablo, you know, Martinez, Hercules. This is us. That's your job, my job, to tell other people about Jesus. Uh, But when you're done doing that, you're also responsible for California. You're also responsible for the country called the United States of America. And then beyond that, you need to partner with other people. We're going to call them missionaries. And you're going to have a part in making sure that the rest of the world also hears about Jesus. Now, let me be really clear about something. I'm going to say this a couple times today. It's my job to preach, but it's everyone's job to witness. Does that make sense? This isn't the pastor's job, witnessing. No, everyone gets to be a witness. Everyone. Now, some of us, we've been in church so long, we're actually using scripture to not do this. Here's what I've actually heard some Christians say. Well, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. The people that have that spiritual gift, they can share. But I'm just, I, I don't have that gift. I have other gifts. Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Except the spiritual gift of evangelism and witnessing have nothing to do with one another. The spiritual gift of evangelism is someone who just, they just, they're leading people to Christ left and right. They're so good at explaining it and drawing people to embrace Jesus. My grandma, Tillotson, on my mother's side, on my, uh, yeah, my mother's side, she was like that. I kid you not. We would go to a supermarket. We'd be in line checking out. She'd turn around, strike up a conversation with someone. Five minutes later, she's leading them to Jesus. I'm like, what is going on here? How do you do that, right? Everywhere she would go. That's the spiritual gift of evangelism. I'm talking simply about tell people about Jesus. Help them take one step closer to Jesus. And occasionally, even if we don't have the gift my grandma had, occasionally we'll be able to introduce our friends, coworkers, family members, classmates to Jesus. 
That's what he calls us to do. Romans chapter 10. Notice what he says. Verse 14. We'll put it on the screen. How can they who's they everyone who's not here today? That's a they. Our friends, our co-workers, classmates, they aren't really interested in Jesus right now. How can they call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in them? He's doing this domino approach. Watch. And how can they believe if they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? Guess who that someone is? It's you. It's you. I honestly believe someday you get to heaven. Jesus is going to ask you, who'd you bring with you? Who did you help get here? I, I know I get it. It's hard. It's nerve wracking. You know, your palms get sweaty. Your mouth gets dry. I get it. But someone's eternity is at straight is at stake. So get over yourselves and witness. First Peter, chapter three, verse 15 says, always be prepared to give an answer. Are you? Yeah, I know I can't. I go to church on Sundays. Why, why do you go to church anyway? Are you ready to give an answer? An answer that draws them closer. Yeah, no, Tuesday night's our Bible study night. What is that all about? Are you ready to give an answer that draws them closer to Jesus? Oh, you're a Christian? You folks all got Trump elected. That was all you guys. That's what I heard. Are you ready to either fight with them or draw them closer to Jesus? Come on. That comes up all the time. Are you ready? You should be. You should at least think through, what am I going to say? When these topics come up, oh my goodness, you see this crazy TV preacher? I'm not into preachers. I'm not into church. All they want is your money. When that comes up, are you ready? What are you going to say? Because you see, I'm not going to be there. Go ahead and tell them, tell them that we don't care. We love them. Right? I'm not going to be there. You're on your own. Are you ready? You've got to think it through. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Notice, do it with gentleness and respect. Have you met Christians that beat people over the head with the Bible? Right? I send them to other churches. Right? I just... <laughs> I don't like them. Unsafe people don't like them. They're just, what are you doing? Treat people with respect. Be respectful. Pasteur was a pioneer in immunology. He lived at a time when thousands of people died of rabies. You said rabies? Yeah. A dog bites you in the neighborhood, right? They would get rabies. They die. We get bitten by a dog. We take our kid or we go to Kaiser. We get a shot. We're done. Fine, we're good. But in the days that Pasteur lived, people would die of rabies. And so he worked really hard for years and years and years. He worked to develop a vaccine to combat rabies. And he was right at the point where he was going to start experimenting, you know, like on hamsters and everything to try and figure out if his vaccine works and all that. And one of his friends came, a mom, and she said, my nine-year-old just got bit by the neighborhood dog. Please give him the vaccine. And Pasteur said, it's not ready. I haven't done any of the tests. I don't know what the dose is. I, it's not ready. She said, please, if you don't give him the vaccine, he's going to die. So because this mom was so influential and insistent and they were friends, he said, okay, I'll do the best I can. He gave this little boy, nine-year-old boy, 
the shot. His name was Joseph Meister. Joseph Meister. Little Joseph um, recovered, survived, and grew to be an old man. Decades later, when Pasteur was on his deathbed, he instructed his family what he wanted etched on his tombstone. Three words. You can still go to his gravesite and see his tombstone with these three words. Joseph Meister lived. Your legacy, our legacy as a church, is going to be based upon one thing. How many people live eternally because we help them embrace Christ as their Savior? That's what it's about. We have got to get better at this witnessing thing. You have got to use your words to draw people closer to Jesus. I don't want to just tell you to do it. Just real quick, how do I do it? Let me give you three suggestions. I I have them in the study guide for you, but let's put them on the screen. Real quick, testimonial, John 9. John 9 is the story of a blind man that Jesus heals. And he goes back to his neighborhood and his buddies are asking him, well, well, what's this Jesus all about? And what did he do? And why? And at one point in time, you know what the blind man does? Chip time? I don't know. Here's what I know. I once was blind, but now I... That's all I know. You know what? That's a great testimony. I once was an addict, but now I'm not. My marriage once was crumbling. Now it's not. I used to be controlled by stress and worry, and now it's not. I used to be a punk, now not so much, right? All I could say is Jesus came into my life and he changed me. You remember when we used to golf and how I used to cuss? Now not so much, right? I don't know. I once was blind and now I see. And you just, just tell them your story. What has Jesus done to you Another one is what's called the, invita- uh, the invitational story. John chapter 4 is the story of a, the woman at the well. You know that story? She's the Samaritan woman and she's had all these husbands and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, you're, you're drawing up water that will quench your thirst, but I'm living water that will quench your soul. And her life gets transformed. Did you, did you know what she does right after? It's very interesting. She goes back into town. She must be super friendly and popular because she said, hey, you come with me. You know, hey, Susan, just leave, no, leave the bread shop. Come with me. Hey, all of you, come with me. And she takes a big crowd to people. Read the story. Takes a big crowd to people. Doesn't say anything to them. Just, just come follow me. Here, his name is Jesus. Listen to him. Go, just listen to him. She just invites them to hear about Jesus. One of the best ways you and I can witness is we have to be much more strategic and intentional about inviting Friends that we know to events that will help them take their step uh, their next step closer to Jesus. If you're a student for you, it's youth group. Don't invite them here necessarily invite them to youth group. It could be an event we're having. It's the Easter egg hunt for crying out loud. I promise you no gummy peas and, you know, carrots this year. So they're going to have good candy. They're going to have fun. It's an opportunity for them to take a little step closer to Jesus. At times, it's by the way, it's why we do these series and all these graphics. It's it's to give you an opportunity and another excuse to invite someone to church. Just invite them. That's it. That's witnessing. 
The last one is interpersonal. Luke chapter five is the story of a guy called Levi. He's a tax collector. He comes across Jesus. His life has changed. He accepts Christ as his savior. You want to know the first thing he does? <coughs> Levi, the tax collector, he throws a party. He was a partier. He throws a party, invites all of his party friends and Jesus. It's what we typically refer to as friendship evangelism. Just be friends with people that don't know Christ. Just genuinely be their friend. And at some point in time, as you're living life with your friend, things come up and conversations come up. And if you're prepared to give an answer, when that topic comes up about stress or about marriage or about whatever it is, politics, you can speak into that and try and help them take their next step closer to Jesus. You want to know what the problem is? The longer we're saved, the less we hang out with unsaved people, the more we hang out with each other. Do you have good unsaved friends? And if not, why not? Because they're everywhere. They live right next to us. They work with us. They go to school with us. Yeah, you want to make sure they don't influence you to do things that are unchristian. You should be influencing them to maybe embrace Christ. But don't turn your back on people because they don't accept Christ yet. I don't care which one of these three you do, but use your words to witness to people. The second one I have to include, there's no way I'm going to spend as much time, is disciple them. Discipling people is when we use our words to help them grow in Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. Now, again, he is not speaking to pastors here. He's speaking to the congregation. Every one of us is instructed to help each other grow in our faith. Every single one of us, right? Now, I have it on there for the screen. I think I also have it in your study guide. The main ways I think you grow in Christ, yep, it's in your study guide. There's four things. Beliefs that people have to learn. That's basically learning this, and it'll take you a lifetime to keep learning and studying. And beliefs, right? The second one is attitudes, right? Because it's not just what you know. It's how you carry yourself. It's fruit of the spirits. It's love, joy, and peace, and patience, and gentleness, and all those. It's attitudes, right? The next one is actions to implement. If you want to be a follower of Christ, there's some things you should be doing, honestly. Like coming to church, check that one out for this week. I should be praying. I should be reading scripture. I should be giving. I should be serving. There's kind of a list of some things we should be doing. And you help other people do that and understand that, right? And the last one is sins we need to eliminate. That's the entire Christian discipleship journey. Beliefs, attitudes, actions, and sins to eliminate. You can explain it in 60 seconds. It'll take you a lifetime to figure out. And we're all responsible to help each other in these four areas. By the way, a brand new Christian, which one of those four do they most need? Beliefs, attitudes, actions, or sins to avoid? Which one do you think? It's the first one. They, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know where Genesis is. Where is that, right? They don't, and you're trying to help them understand, right? By the way, brand new Christians, you know what they do really good, really quick? They start eliminating sin because they've come out of a life of sin. They know better than anyone what sin does to you. It, you almost don't even have to tell them. They just kind of do it on their own. If you've been, let's do the opposite, not brand new Christians, but you've been a Christian forever. You went to Sunday school with Moses. I mean, you've been around forever. <laughs> These people, what do they most need to work on? What do you think? You, know, you want to know what research says? By far, not even close. 
attitude. I don't know why it is, but the longer some of us are saved, the grumpier we get. And, and here's what's interesting. You know who we get grumpy at? All those newer, younger Christians. I mean, they should be doing more and they should know more. And why aren't they tithing and why aren't they serving? And we forget that we used to be where they are at right now. Chill out with the person sitting in the row in front of you. Their job is just to be heading in the right direction. We're all at different stages of our journey. Here's my point. It's everyone's job to disciple, not just the pastor's job. And some of you should especially be doing that because you are more, you know, seasoned as a believer and you could help other people. So use your word to witness, use your word to disciple. The next two are just more life general categories. This third one may surprise you, but laugh with them. Use your words to cause people to smile, cause people to smile. Look at John fifteen eleven. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and my joy may be complete. Question, is it? Is the joy of the Lord in you and is it popping out of you? And if not, why not? You've heard me say before, I think Christians, we should be the happiest people on earth. The problem is some of us aren't. Well, and I, I can't figure out why. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let me ask you a question this way. Your words, your conversations, do they cause people to frown or do they cause people to smile? Well, my personality, I'm more of an introvert and I'm not a stand-up comedian. I'm not asking you to be a stand-up comedian. I'm asking you to enjoy life, to love life, to develop your sense of humor. Yes, right? But have people smile after they talk to you, not frown. Which one are we? It's important. Some of it, I don't know why it is. I think actually some of us have this misunderstanding. Well, if you want to be spiritual, you got to be serious. (laughs) Stop smiling. We're in church. You know, I've ever been in churches like that. Some of us grew up in that atmosphere. I I told first service this It kind of slipped into my sermon. I'll tell you guys when I first started preaching, I was in seminary and you have what's called preaching labs. So it's a small room that only eight people can fit in. Right. The the, the student in this case, it was me is behind a podium at the back of the room. There's this glass window sound window and the professor is back there and as i'm teaching right they're recording it onto a tape he's speaking onto the tape i can't hear him but he's speaking as i'm preaching so that when i listen back to it i can get all his comments does that make sense so he's like well your introduction it doesn't make complete sense you need a transition sentence there and oh make sure you do this and you know watch what you're doing with your arms and he's giving all these coaching suggestions onto my tape so that when I listen to it at home, it's very helpful in the moment advice. Does that make sense? Do you want to know the number one by far piece of advice my first preaching professor gave me? He said about my preaching, by far, number one. You want to know what it was? Exactly the opposite. Kathy said, too happy. She, he said to me, you are far too serious. And if you'd listened to me back then, I was. I grew up in a setting that really taught If you love Jesus, if you're serious about being spiritual, then you have to be somber and spiritual. And he sat me down. He says, I don't know where you figured that out. I don't want you to be a goof off. But you you do realize that humor actually helps people assimilate truth. Right. 
So it was something that I had to kind of tweak myself out of and, and understand that not only should I, but I can. I can be the same person on, on stage here that I am out in that street. And I think that's positive. We never want someone that's different. Next couple verses, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, albeit this is from the message, but listen, worry weighs us down. A cheerful word picks us up. Do your words pick people up? Are they skipping just a little bit nicer and higher after they talk to you? Or are they dragging their feet? First Kings chapter 21, verse 7. Some of us need to get this. Get up, eat, and cheer up. Cheer up. Goodness gracious. Some of you know I have a psychology degree. I enjoy studying psychology. Psychology is nothing more than the study of human behavior, right? And I, I get the magazine Psychology Today, and I looked this past week and Googled the, how many articles had they printed on humor and laughter in the last couple of years. Amazing. I couldn't, I couldn't write them all down. Let me give you the titles of some of the articles written by Psychology Today on this topic, right? The first one is easy. You'll know this humor and it's tremendous health benefits. You know that, right? Medical doctors will tell you, tell you that when we laugh, we literally release chemicals and endorphins that actually make us healthier. So they've been saying that for years. These next ones were very interesting. Here's another article title, LOL laughter as a tool to fight stress and depression. So therapists are saying, yeah, you're depressed. You're stressed. I get it. Go watch an Adam, Adam Sandler movie, do something, but figure out a way to laugh It'll help you deal with stress. Here's another one. What's so funny? Coping with grief. And what they've discovered is that when we're going through grief, at the time when we don't want to laugh at all, we just experience loss, that's the time when you most need to figure out a way to love life, enjoy something, smile and laugh, because it will help you cope. It doesn't take it away, but it'll help you cope. These next two articles are relationship articles, but you'll, you'll catch on. This first one is about marriage. Couples who laugh together stay together. Isn't that true? Just, just look around. Couples that are doing things together and laughing together and enjoying life are typically the couples that are tightest. This next one, listen up, single men. You're going to like this next article. How humor helps men date, court, and get the woman you want. There you go, right there. How do you think I ended up with Sandy? I mean, honestly, three reasons. Ask her three reasons. Why did you, were you attracted to David? Number one, he loves Jesus and wants to go into ministry. Because so did she. I hope loving Jesus is at the top of your list. Number two is obvious. She loved, loved her, my soccer legs and that sexy mullet that I had in college. Irresistible. Irresistible. It was. And, and number three, ask her. He makes me laugh. He makes me smile. And it's true about people. Don't, don't, who do you prefer to hang out with? Paul tells us, listen, I want you to use your words to build people up. And researchers are now telling us one of the ways you build people up, one of the ways you pick people up, help them smile. Just help people smile. You don't have to be a goof off. Help them smile. Here's the last one. I've got to wrap it up. Encourage them. First Thessalonians 5. Therefore, encourage one another build each other up. Proverbs 12, 25, worry wears a person down An encouraging word cheers a person up. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, let us encourage how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. How do I do that? By encouraging one another. 
Just this past week, someone called me and I was able to go to a warrior game. It was a ton of fun. And uh, on the way back, we were talking about, oh, my goodness, I hope warriors have home court advantage because the Rockets are doing so good and so on and so forth. I don't care if you're into basketball or not. Let me ask you a question and I think you'll figure it out. Why does an NBA basketball team so desperately want home court during the playoffs? Well, I would prefer, if I have a choice, 20,000 people on my home court that are cheering for me, encouraging me, play good defense. You know, I want that instead of 20,000 people that are booing for me. And statistics show when you have home court, you're more likely to succeed and win. Can I tell you something? What is true in the NBA is also true in life. Your kids are more likely to succeed if you are an encourager. Your coworkers are more likely to succeed if you're an encourager. Your classmates are more likely to succeed if you're an encourager. Be an encourager. Came across this quote, I thought it was rather appropriate. Encouragement is like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The more you spread around, the better things stick together. <laughs> thought that was pretty appropriate. How do we encourage people? By motivating them to keep persevering, by appreciating them, by complimenting them. Just everybody has at least one or two things we should be complimenting them on. Everyone. Don't be stingy with your compliments. I came across this list. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Helpful for you married guys. Here we go. Top compliments wives love to hear. Ready? Top compliments wives love to hear. By the way, wives, if your husband uses one of these on you this week, I don't want to hear, well, you're just doing that because the pastor said you had to do it. Yeah, he got something out of church. Let him be. He's trying to apply. Here we go. Let's wrap it up. Compliments wives love to hear. You look great. Who doesn't like to be told that? You look great, right? Here's another one. I love your cooking. It's delicious. Better that than the opposite, right? Here's another one. Compliments wives love to hear. You're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> ah, that's not going to happen. No. <laughs> Here's another one. You're a great mom. I'm telling you, that one is probably my wife's number one. She preferred to hear that than all the other stuff. Because parenting is hard. I got good kids and it's still hard. You're doing a great job with the kids, Sandy. She likes that. Okay. Uh, last couple ones. Thanks for everything you do. Here's another one. You're my best friend. And the number one compliment, number one compliment wives like to hear the most. Here it is. I'm so glad you have all your teeth. So there you have it. Top compliments <laughs> wife like to hear. Let's put the last slide up there. I'm two minutes over. Unwholesome talk, helpful talk. Think about what you said this past week. How much of it was unwholesome? Think about it real quick. What percentage can you lower that percentage? Yes? Can you lower that percentage? How about helpful talk? Healthy talk that builds people up. Can you increase that percentage? You willing to do that? Let's make use of what we've learned this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word, how practical it is. We pray that you would teach us, give us discipline, give us your power and strength to speak in a way that honors you and that helps others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.